The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome everyone. Happy holidays. Um, some of you know we've been looking at the seven factors of awakening this fall. And this is a list the Buddha used to describe a balanced mind. And uh, the last factor in that list of seven is equanimity. Start, I started to talk about that last week, and we'll talk a little bit more about that tonight, partly because equanimity is a great topic, uh, a great way of reflecting on the mind because it gives us a sense of how functional this path is. I mean, the whole point of cultivating anything is that it has a purpose, and that's true for meditation or spiritual life. So what is the purpose of spiritual life, or what is the purpose of meditation? And it's to be able to live the kind of lives that we live and not be crushed by it or beat up by it or disturbed by it. And this is why equanimity is often thought of as a, a mind state that reflects the freedom of enlightenment. So we may not be fully enlightened beings, but all of us have a sense of what equanimity is. And with practice, we can have a deeper and deeper sense of equanimity. And in those moments of equanimity, we get a sense of what the path is about. It's a movement in the direction of equanimity. And this is sort of interesting. As soon as we start reflecting, and by reflecting, I don't mean just thinking about equanimity. I mean, reflecting is we have a concept like equanimity, and then we use our experience, our present moment experience, to reflect on, well, what would that actually be, equanimity? So it's a... In Buddhism, um, reflection or contemplation is a play between awareness and thinking. It's not just thinking, but we're thinking and we're using the thoughts or concepts to frame, uh, to sort of create a particular way of looking at our present moment experience. And when we do that, we have some understanding, like a direct seeing, that's some understanding. And then we use that to inform our concepts and then the concepts, again, direct the mind back to the present moment. And that's the basic engine of awakening. So it's not about the absence of thoughts. It's that the thoughts are being used, concepts are being used to direct our attention to the present moment in a particular way. Basically, using the mind to look at the mind. And then even more particular than that, we use like a list like this, like factors that some wise person has told us are uh, really potent when they're in balance. So then we, we sort of take that up. Okay, well, let me use this model, this conceptual model, and start reflecting on what I'm actually seeing in my mind, you know, the absence or presence of investigation, the absence or presence of energy, of rapture, of tranquility, of concentration, of equanimity, of mindfulness. And the neat thing about equanimity as one of these factors is that it, uh, 
it really it has a uh, it really points to this path that sort of sums up this path because the way Buddhism uses the word equanimity it involves a very deep or close connection in fact equanimity is considered one of the Brahma Viharas the divine abodes and usually you know we think of these as qualities of love so equanimity is a quality of of spiritual love and from the Buddhist perspective there's metta or loving-kindness and karuna or compassion and mudita empathetic joy and upeka equanimity these are the four divine abodes the Buddha said these are the four only four emotions you really need <laughs> loving-kindness compassion empathetic joy or sympathetic joy and equanimity so equanimity is all about connection being intimate because often you know when we don't understand equanimity as a as a wholesome powerful mind state we think of equanimity as sort of being distant and, and looking out at the world and somehow we feel protected here in Minneapolis in a relatively safe little corner of the, of the world and we have some equanimity that well you know people have burnt too much carbon and now the world's getting hot and and we can have a sort of distance to it all you know oh the stupid fools in Washington causing this war in Iraq and, and we sort of have it out there or even you know our siblings who don't have their act together or our friends who don't have their act together or even have that distance with our own mistakes our own sort of limitations oh there I go again and it kind of looks like equanimity but if you're around somebody like that if you're around yourself when you're like that something rings a little hollow <coughs> and I think the thing that rings a little hollow is that we're not actually connected in that moment like probably you've run across people who can talk about you know spiritual things they have sort of a new age lingo and they know about letting go and letting things be but it just doesn't ring right doesn't sound right doesn't feel right and the more you look you realize that this person or if it's you you know that we're not actually connecting we're not intimate we're just skimming the surface in a way it's a, a pretend or imitation of equanimity and so it's like this chicken and egg like well how can we be really close connected intimate with things like even this body it's not easy to even be connected with our body because it's often unpleasant how can we be connected intimate when things are difficult challenging out of our control and see this is the great thing about equanimity is that it's a fusion of of connection which we usually call love and wisdom because to be equanimous we have to be close but we need wisdom in order to be close otherwise we're going to be reactive and clearly you know being reactive is the opposite of equanimity so it's not about you know being reactive it is it does have this cool uh, uh, dispassionate quality I mean it, we know that I mean even in our sort of non-spiritual use we think of equanimity as sort of a cool quality as opposed to passion.
of reactivity. So it ignites, you know, it, it, it ignites, it, it is in a way the cause for insight, wisdom, being close. And then, of course, the wisdom allows us to be close. That's the chicken and egg. Like, how do we actually develop equanimity? We could say, well, we have to develop the wisdom. Well, in order to have wisdom, we have to connect. In order to connect, we need wisdom. We can't really connect with our body, connect with another human being, connect with the experience of the mind without wisdom. Because as soon as we bring our mind to anything, as we move in the direction of connection, intimacy, we get we react. Like if we're getting intimate with something pleasant, we get attached to it. If we're getting intimate with something unpleasant, we get averse to it. If we get intimate with something neutral, we usually get distracted because it's not important. And that's, and that's just another reaction. So we need the wisdom that goes beyond the habit of grabbing a hold of pleasant, pushing away unpleasant, and forgetting about or ignoring neutral. So those of you who've meditated for a while, you might know this, this basic principle in practice, which is, Although there is this development in our lives of more calm, more tranquility as we practice, that somehow it seems paradoxical, but it isn't. It doesn't. Um, it doesn't get in the way of the development of a, a very powerful energy in the mind, brightness in the mind. Is usually the way I like to talk about it. So even though there's a sense of ease. The ease, it doesn't mean that we don't have energy. There's not energy in the mind. There's not brightness in the mind. It just means that the brightness of mind is in balance. So it's there. It's potent. It's all potential. But it has no need to do anything. So you can think of, you know, uh, a racehorse that's been you know, warmed up, jogged around the lap a few times, rubbed down, I don't know what they do to horses, but you know, it's all ready to go. But it's just content to stand there, ready to do whatever it's asked to do, but not having a preference to do anything, but also not have a preference not to do anything. And so this is a, a you know, a sense of equanimity, the, the brightness of equanimity or the nimbleness of equanimity. And this also connects with, uh, relates to the quality of love, you know, equanimity as a quality of love or as an expression of love. Because often we think of love as an active force, compassion as an active force. And uh, equanimity, even though it, it, in a popular usage, has a sense of coolness, it also has this potential. It's like... Uh, our whole life, our whole life of action, of choices, can arise out of equanimity. Because equanimity doesn't prefer passivity or activity. It doesn't have a preference. That's the whole point of equanimity. It isn't, equanimity isn't a preference for passivity. Equanimity is not having a personal agenda. The mind doesn't have a personal agenda. And one of the Images that I like 
I don't think I shared this last week, but Joseph Goldstein, one of my teachers, would say, you know, often an ordinary mind is like a bowl, and uh, it's an, except it's up, uh, turned upside down. It's an upside down bowl, smooth bowl. And uh, we're trying to, you know, get to the center, you know, really land, be present in the moment. And that's like putting a little marble at the top of the bowl. And, you know, it may stay there for an instant, but if there's any vibration, it's going to just roll right off of the bowl. And it isn't so easy to get that marble back in that center point, present moment. And that with the, develop of wis- the development of wisdom, of, of the practice, it's like it's the bowl goes back upright. And so still, any movement is going to move the marble but now its tendency is to come back to center. And so it responds, you know, if somebody bumps the bowl, it naturally, effortlessly, nimbly responds to life's bumps, you know, and it moves. But then it, it settles back down and it's right there in the present moment, ready to respond to the next bump. It doesn't get lost, you know, it doesn't fall off and then... Uh, need some divine intervention <laughs> put it back into the center <coughs> sometimes we think of equanimity patience but in a deeper sense you know especially the way we use patience is I'm not sure that it's that useful because Patience, in our normal sense, has a sense of enduring something, you know. We're just kind of holding it together, trying to hold it together to make it to the end, which sometimes is quite, is all we can do. It's quite skillful to live that way, you know, in difficult moments, to be patient, to endure what's difficult. But it's, uh, from a point of view of equanimity, it's, it's not enough wisdom. So... When things are difficult, in order to be equanimous with difficult experience, wisdom needs to be developed so that whatever it is that's difficult, whatever that pain is, it's not landing anywhere. There's no part of the mind taking a hold of the pain and turning it into a problem. It doesn't mean there isn't pain. It just means there's no reactivity to the pain. Same with uh, pleasant experience. No reactivity to the pleasant experience. I'll read a little bit from Joseph Goldstein's book. It's a nice general book about practice. There's two really excellent books from this. There are many, actually, but from this tradition, two, I think, especially good books. One is uh, Jack Kornfield's book, A Path with Heart. Some of you, I'm sure, have read And the other is Joseph Goldstein's book, Insight Meditation, The Practice of Freedom. And this is in paperback, too, now. So this is his chapter on acceptance. In teaching meditation, we often advise students to develop a soft and spacious mind. And he's skipping ahead. We mean by soft and spacious mind the quality of acceptance. For example, suppose you are watching your breath in meditation and you feel a sense of struggle or tension. This feeling of struggle may be a sign that something else 
is happening in your experience that you're not recognizing or allowing. Perhaps you are not opening to some other sensation in the body, some discomfort or some underlying emotion. Or perhaps you've become caught in an ex expectation with too much effort or striving, wanting the experience of the moment to be different from what, is actual, from what it actually is. Softness means opening to what is there, relaxing into it. At such a time, try this mantra. It's okay. Whatever it is, it's okay. Let me feel it. So that's a new mantra. <laughs> it's okay. Whatever it is, it's okay. Let me feel it. That is the softening of the mind. You can open, your, open to your experience with a sense of allowing and simply be with whatever predominates, a pain, a thought, an emotion, anything. Softening the mind involves two steps. First, become mindfully aware of whatever is most predominant. That is the core guideline for all insight meditation. So the first step is just to see, to open. For the second step, notice how you're relating to whatever arises. Often we can be with an arising appearance, but in a reactive way. If we like it, we tend to hold on. We become attached. If we do not like it because it is painful in some way, we tend to contract, to push it away out of fear, irritation, or annoyance. Each of these responses is the opposite of acceptance. The easiest way to relax is to stop trying to make things different. Rather than try to create another state, simply allow space for whatever is going on. And isn't it amazing how simple that sounds? And it really is simple. And I think it's actually important to remember that it's really simple. But it's definitely not our habit. I mean, in a way, uh, our whole sort of conditioning is about reacting to pleasant and unpleasant in particular ways. Pleasant and unpleasant experience in particular ways. So in a way, we're, we're rewiring that conditioning. So that's why it's difficult. That's why it's difficult to try to live a spiritual life and to develop meditation practice. Because we're directly, consciously, directly undoing or rewiring our conditioning. Equanimity is an expression of a heart or mind that's been rewired. You know, to live, to have some moments, equanimous moments, where, you know, there's a beautiful meal in front of us and there's no attachment or craving. So that if, you know, the cat jumps on the table and for some reason throws it off balance and the whole table flips and all the dishes break and the food's been completely ruined, there would be no anger. There would be no upset. It would be, oh, now it's this way. And, you know, we'd clean it up and find we only have oatmeal left and make, us, make ourselves a nice bowl of oatmeal or something like that. And we can, t I mean, this is like a good practice for us to, to every day or every time we can think about it, remember it, to just say, okay, life is constantly changing. Things are happening all the time. 
it's just a matter of time before something disturbing happens or something beautiful happens or something neutral happens. And whatever that, whatever of these three things is about to happen in the next moment is an opportunity to express equanimity, wisdom, which is that, that intimacy without reactivity, to be fully there, present, raw, you know, exposed to our life without the reactivity. So that's that coolness. Rumi, um, you know, this Islamic Sufi poet and wise person from the 1300s, I believe. There's this great line in one of his writings which says, emptiness brings peace to love. Or you could say wisdom brings peace to love. Which means that without wisdom, love's, love tends to come with a lot of attachment. A lot of reactivity, fear, right? Like the person I love will go away or things will change. But this wisdom, the wisdom we get from being intimate with experience, with our lives, over time, the wisdom that develops really cools love down. So in a spiritual sense, love is very cool. It's not dramatic. It goes everywhere equally. And therefore, it's very responsive. It's not brittle. doesn't have any of its own agenda. Like loving kindness doesn't have its own agenda. Not even the agenda that my love have an effect. So when we go to the hospital and our favorite aunt is dying or has cancer, and you know, we don't have any agenda like, I'm loving you, I'm caring for you, I'm praying for you so you get better. So what happens if she doesn't get better? And then we feel somehow cheated or she didn't do her part or, you know, it can be a problem. But to love people no matter what happens, to, be, to have a heart that stays open no matter what happens. That's what uh, wisdom does for love. It really makes it uh, resilient. It's not brittle at all. One of my other teachers at the Insight Meditation Society in Massachusetts, Michelle McDonald Smith, has this great line. Because, you know, as I was saying, this is not our habit. And the way she says it is how hard we work to keep everything from being as it is, which is really true. So um, some of you know that in meditation practice, one of the 40 concentration practices the Buddha taught, he taught 40 ways to concentrate your mind. I'm sure there are more. And uh, several of them have to do with developing uh, powerful states of love, loving kindness or compassion or empathetic joy or equanimity. And one of the ways that uh, practitioners have worked, like developed, that concentration on equanimity. So here, we're, we're taking equanimity as a particular theme and then concentrating the mind on it. And so to develop that theme, to actually have the feeling of equanimity, 
Well, it's uh, it's appropriate to use images and words in the mind, like a prayer, and images that go with that those words to help sort of ignite the feeling of equanimity, and then that becomes the object of meditation. So that's just one technique. This is what we practice on our first Friday of the month practice group. Some of you have been there to the, we call it the metta practice group or the loving kindness practice group the first Friday of the month at 7. So it's coming up in a week if you'd like to join. It's just a drop-in group like tonight, except it focuses on those four, developing medita- meditation practices for those four qualities of mind, loving kindness, compassion, empathetic joy, and equanimity. And so for equanimity, the tradition, there's some traditional phrases that are sort of interesting. So if you'd like to sort of directly, consciously uh, develop this quality, learn to recognize it and to strengthen it as a mind state, you can try one of these phrases. So the traditional one, and this is a little shocking for some people, because this is one of the practices of love, this phrase seems a little shocking because it's not normally what we relate to as love. And the phrase is something like, all beings are owners of their actions. One's happiness and unhappiness depends upon one's actions, not my wishes. So you could add something to soften it a little bit. You could say, I care about you, but your happiness or unhappiness depends upon your actions, not upon my wishes. Or you can shorten it. Some people, you know, just say something like, ownership of action. So with these different flavors of love, it's just depending on what the mind is particularly sensitive to. So if you're if you're really seeing a lot of suffering in your life, you might want to cultivate compassion because compassion is very useful when you're seeing a lot of suffering. If you're seeing a lot of joy around you, then it'd be really nice to develop sympathetic joy where your happiness is a cause for me to be happy. I'm happy because you're happy. That's what sympathetic joy is. So we, we appreciate, we're, sometimes they call it appreciative joy. It's like the heart is appreciating the happiness, success, joy around us. And it's a cause for joy in our own hearts. And so for equanimity is especially useful when your heart or mind is sensitive to how everything's changing. And in a way, nobody's in control. Like sometimes people like us and sometimes people seem to hate us. And sometimes things go well and sometimes things don't. And sometimes we're healthy and sometimes we're sick. Sometimes the kids do what we ask them to do, and sometimes they don't do what they ask us to do. So when we're aware of how up and down everything is, then that's a good time to cultivate equanimity. And so that makes this phrase make a little bit more sense. So it's like we're gazing at the world with this loving heart that understands conditionality, that understands that things can't be other than they are right now. Given conditionality, given the causes and conditions, this amazing web that makes this moment this moment, given that, so we're seeing that. So it's like wisdom, one of the ways to hold wisdom is like that great breadth of seeing. So it's not a narrow kind of seeing, but it's a seeing that includes everything. And so in terms of conditionality, it means 
we're, we're not seeing isolated events. So if our kid is acting out or if our neighbor is acting out, we're not just seeing that particular action that we are seeing as bad. We're seeing their childhood. We're seeing the culture that sort of made them who they are. We're seeing that, the, you know, that being an angry neighbor is going to lead to painful results. So we're seeing, our, even though they may not getting their, be getting their painful results, we know that if someone is being disagreeable and you know doing whatever angry neighbors do, that generally what goes around comes around, you know, and people stop talking to them, stop taking care of them, and and so on and so on. So seeing with wisdom means we're seeing all of that, not even with the thinking. It's not like we have to think about that, but we just sort of get it intuitively. This is how it is, and that. That's that phrase. It's just understanding that what's going to happen in each of our lives isn't so much about what we want to happen in our life, in your life. But what's going to happen is just the natural, lawful unfolding of causes and conditions. And see, so this, is, this is what really sets love free. Because then when we, when we have this quality of compassion or love for others, for ourselves and others, it has, it has nothing to do with being in control of what's going to happen. So it's a love or a care that's not dependent on being in control of what's going to happen. And just using this theme of, of being a parent, and I might have mentioned this last week, And I forget if it's from the time of the Buddha or some of the commentaries that were written, um, you know, in the century or two after the time of the Buddha. But they use this uh, image of a parent of equanimity. They use this image of a parent and how when the children are young, they don't have equanimity. But at some point, when the kids are older and married and have a craft or, you know, a job, that that uh, natural equanimity arises when the parent on some level realizes it's like they still love their kids but they realize I'm not responsible for my kids happiness anymore and see that's different than I'm assuming I mean I'm not a parent but I I would imagine that's quite different than when you're a parent of a four-year-old where you do feel responsible whether it's useful to feel responsible or not, I don't know. But I would imagine parents do feel responsible. And uh, I really work on that just in my intimate relationship with Wynn, you know, being married. And it's so challenging. And I'm sure you see that with your friends and your intimate partners, too. It's like we want them to be happy because, I mean, let's, let's be honest, we want them to be happy because it's a pain being around people who are unhappy. And, uh, but that's not what we normally say. And it's, and it's also mixed with this feeling that we do, we do really care about them, too. But, but I can see in moments, at least, a kind of equanimity where, and, and the telltale sign of equanimity, as I mentioned earlier, is I'm willing to be close even when Wynne isn't happy, even when it's a difficult time for her, 
or my other friends, you know, members of my family. It's that willingness to be close and not in a hurry for their suffering to go away. Because that's a... I notice the other, of course, much more than I notice those moments of equanimity. Like I'll notice, and it, you know, we get pretty good at covering it up, but I'll notice, like, being close, but there's an agenda, like wanting to fix this person's suffering, you know, either in a direct way or an indirect way, wanting to go away. But we have to be really forgiving about that tendency in our mind. And in a way, it's better to be close and to be feeling that controlling energy than to just somehow distance ourselves, Because then we can work with it. If we're close and we feel that controlling energy, I mean, not, not only is it suffering for the other person, but it's definitely suffering for us. And it's seeing that suffering that motivates us to try something else, to live or relate in a different way. We have to see that. So that's why, in general, on this path, this path of awakening that the Buddha taught, intimacy is so important. All, uh, you know, the, the whole point of meditation practice is to learn how to be close. You know, we create the optimal conditions, a quiet room or quiet space outside, a comfortable sitting posture, no distractions, take something neutral like the body sensations or the breath in the body, and we just practice being close to the breath, like being really close without trying to control it, or with the sensations of the body, or with the sounds that we're hearing, or with the flow of thought in the mind, so that there's more of a chance as we're living our life that we can be close and equanimous, non-reactive. So you might want to work with... Uh, this as a formal practice and you don't even I mean sitting down and doing it as like the first 10 minutes or the last 10 minutes of your sitting time would be great but you could just do it through the day find a phrase that works for you I'll give you a few others may may we all accept things as they are but if you work downtown can you imagine during your lunch break walking through the skyways just repeating that phrase and remember, this is a contemplation or reflection, so it's not just this mechanical repetition of a phrase. But you say the phrase, and then you let that, those words, that, the meaning of the words, sort of direct the attention so that you're touching the meaning in your moment-to-moment -moment experience. And then again, restate the phrase. May we accept things just as they are. May we all accept things as they are. Or may this heart accept things just as they are. And then you just practice right then, completely relaxing with the moment. And then after a few seconds, say it again. So that's another way. I'll just give you a couple other phrases that people have used over the years. May we or may I be undisturbed by the comings and goings of events. So if you're sending your equanimity out, you might say it to your partner. May you be uh, undisturbed by the comings and goings of your life. Or if you're working with your own heart, then may I be undisturbed by the comings and goings of my life of events. I wish you happiness but cannot make your choices for you. Or I will care for you but, not, but cannot keep you from suffering. 
I care about your suffering, but things are the way they are now. And there's no right phrase. So you can just be creative. Don't just always think about what the best phrase is, because then that's not the same as practicing. So find a, a phrase that is meaningful for you. And you might like write it down, put it on your computer screen, or sometimes I'll write something down and put it in my pocket. And then, you know, whenever I put my hand in my pocket, even though I'm not reading it, I remember that note, I remember what's on that note, and then it just reminds me that I can use this moment to contemplate that. Things are the way that they are. Can this be okay? That's my basic phrase, you know. This is how it is now. Can this be okay? Or it's just an invitation to relax instead of to react with the conditions. And when we do this in a conscious, active way, we create, as Joseph Goldstein calls, a wisdom field. I mean, it it gives the heart-mind a kind of resiliency to deal with the predominant condition of our life, which is change. You know, the Buddha talks about the eight vicissitudes. You've probably heard this list. It's a nice one. He's just describing what's true for all human beings, or all beings, probably. He says, pain and pleasure gain and loss, praise and blame, fame and disrepute. That defines our experience. And it's just this endless swinging. Now, some people might have more fame, others, you know, the opposite. But all of us swing between these eight poles. And so the practice is about developing the heart or wisdom that allows us to be in this kind of world. And one of the images they've used, this is great, you probably have heard this before, or many of you have, but you know, if you're gonna walk in this world, you know, we have two choices. And back then the way they described it is you could cover the world in leather in order to get rid of all the sharp objects so you don't stub your toe or get cut, or you could make yourself a pair of shoes. And Developing wisdom is like a pair of shoes that allows us not to get our feet to get beat up by just being, living our life. I'll just end with uh, one of my favorite poems. And again, this is one that's been around quite a bit, but it's, I find it very potent. It's Thich Nhat Hanh's poem, Please Call Me By My True Names. And I think it's especially... Uh, beautiful pointing toward the experience of equanimity. So again, it's called, Please Call Me By My True Names. And you get a sense, like instead of that narrow view, the person, you know, in the moment of writing this poem, you get the sense that Thich Nhat Hanh had a very wide view that included everything. Do not say that I will depart tomorrow because even today I still arrive. Look deeply. I arrive in every second to be a bud on a spring branch, to be a tiny bird with wings still fragile learning to sing in my new nest, to be a caterpillar in the heart of the flower, to be a jewel hiding itself in a stone. I still arrive in order to laugh and to cry, in order to fear and to hope, The rhythm of my heart is the birth and death of all that are alive. I am the mayfly metamorphosing on the surface of the river, 
and I am the bird which, when spring comes, arrives in time to eat the mayfly. I am the frog swimming happily in the clear water of a pond, and I am the grass snake who, approaching in silence, feeds itself on the frog. I am a child in Uganda, all skin and bones, my legs as thin as bamboo sticks, and I am the arms merchant selling deadly weapons to Uganda. I am the 12-year-old girl refugee on a small boat who throws herself into the ocean after being raped by a sea pirate. And I am the pirate, my heart not yet capable of seeing and loving. I am a member of the Politburo with plenty of power in my hands. And I am the man who has to pay his debt of blood to my people dying slowly in a forced labor camp. My joy is like spring, so warm it makes flowers bloom in all walks of life. My pain is like a river of tears, so full it fills all four oceans. Please call me by my true names, so I can hear all my cries and laughs at once, so I can see that my joy and pain are one. Please call me by my true names, so I can wake up and so the door of my heart can be left open, the door of compassion. Thank you, Thich Nhat Hanh, for that beautiful poem. And we have some time. If people have any thoughts you'd like to share, it would be nice to hear if you have experiences in your own life of working with equanimity, things that have been difficult, but that you've developed some resilience, some spaciousness, or patience with places that are not where you're, it's not easy to be equanimous that you'd like to share. Any questions about the talk tonight? Hmm. Craig. Sorry, simple. Um, I heard this in last week, but I never got the short definition of equanimity. Would you mind sharing that? Yeah, impartiality or balanced mind, probably words that are used often. Actually, the word upeka comes from um, uh, it's like to see up close. So it really has a sense of a direct facing of life, like a turning toward and facing things. So it's interesting. It really has that sense of moving to, not distancing. Sometimes I think it's hard to see uh, in my own life how the practice has changed me. And so I had a situation today that kind of helped me give me a story to talk about tonight in that my job changes often and I work with different folks and the woman that I is in the cubicle next to mine has a real tendency to complain a lot about her job. And her job is handling a similar mind handling challenging projects and on. And so she gets out the phone and she's swearing and she's saying, I'm just tired of babysitting, blah, 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 you know. And, and today I asked her a question because I was just struck by how stuck she was here. I said, Well, if you didn't have to deal with those problems, would you have a job at all? And she just went silent. <laughs> And she said, good point. <laughs> <laughs>
you're like, okay, I think I know a little something here. So I just wanted to share that. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Bonnie. Patty. I have a question. Yeah, I, I've tried uh, to use, and sometimes I'm successful with it, when you talked about in the past um, saying, you know, it's like this now, or how to phrase that. Um, can this be, can, I be, can this be okay? Yes. And I'm not trying to be funny, but really, like, what if the answer is no? Or what if, like, sometimes mm -hmm. I can, sometimes I can say, well, it is okay, Patty, because you're actually here right now and you're okay. Mm -hmm. So, and sometimes I'm able to um, stretch it out in that direction a little bit and see that I'm okay, really, and I'm breathing. And, but sometimes I just think, no, I can't be okay with this. But I didn't. I thought, maybe Mark's never not okay. <laughs> <laughs> Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> Well, I think there's some, I mean, just, just to that, that sort of small point that people's lives are different and some people's lives have a lot more difficulty in them than others. So we, we always want to be careful because about what we say because, uh, or maybe not careful, but humble because it may be relatively easy for us to stay relaxed in our lives until X happens, you know, and then we go, oh, oh, this is what people have been dealing with. But the way the practice works is sometimes, exactly as you stated, Patty, sometimes when something challenging arises, we are able somehow, because of causes and conditions, to have a lot of space. You know, So the conditions are sufficient that the mind stays spacious. And the mind's not locking in on the particular unpleasantness of what's happening, but sees a broader, wider, deeper perspective and understands that, yeah, it's unpleasant, but can't be other than it is. You know, they're just, it allows for, and it will change. You know, it's unpleasant, but things will change. But other times when, you know, if the conditions are just right, you know, the perfect wave, which can happen quite frequently for some people, then it's like the mind has no space. It just sees this thing arising, this thing is painful, and the mind doesn't want it to be there. And the mind reacts. The mind sees no possibility of acceptance or allowing, even though it's already this way, the idea of allowing it to be what it already is is just like nowhere in the picture. So even in that moment, though, when we're feeling helpless and desperate, and it's still possible, I mean, we have to train the mind, but it's still possible to take a step back, not to accepting the pain, but accepting that we're freaking out that we're, we're feeling overwhelmed and we hate it and we can't stand it and it's not fair. So basically we're, we're taking a step back and, we, and it's not at all about being peaceful with the, what the conditions, but it's about being peaceful with being a freaked out human being, an angry human being, a uh, reactive human being. And simply acknowledging, oh, well, this is what it's like. You know, and acknowledging the pain of being overwhelmed or being angry or upset. And uh, it, it allows for some relief. 
So there's always a way to begin. But what we tend to do is we overshoot. It's like we want to use the practice to resolve the pain. But actually the first step is simply to allow the pain to be the pain. So the pain of being desperate or the pain of being overwhelmed. The first relief comes by just allowing that truth to be the way it is because it's already that way. We are an overwhelmed human being. And to be in a hurry for that to go away is just more suffering. It's more suffering to be an overwhelmed human being who's in a hurry not to be overwhelmed anymore than it is to just be an overwhelmed human being. Maria, did you have a thought? Well, I think it's it's especially true for for us, those of us who have, you know, who understand the, what the practice is about and understand like how equanimity is right at the center. And so it's like not cool, in my case, for a meditation teacher to be like acting out in front of everybody, you know, because you know we all know the practice is about equanimity, and their mark is you know freaking out or. But see, actually, that's not true. I mean, it, there's some truth to that. You would hope that some, in general, that he's, you know, that I'm or whoever is acting out less and less. But if someone tends to be really reactive, then they still may be reacting quite a bit. But what's really relative, uh, important rather, is is not something we can see directly. It's when the person is reacting, do they take it personally? How much strength does the reactivity have? So this is something we can notice in ourselves and notice in others. Like some people, I know some people, a lot of people, uh, good friends, who tend to be very reactive types. But and and these these are people who've done a lot of practice for uh, more than ten years. And one of the things to me that's just it's just like uh, such a source of confidence in this path is to see these people. And the thing is, they're still the same in a sense like they still things push their buttons they react they get emotional they just got a lot of emotional energy but it's like there are these explosions and then that ends it's like they blow up or they get sad they get angry they have a lot of self-hatred arise and then it's over so that that the difference the sort of fruit of the practice is not so much that they're no longer an emotional person it's just that that emotions sort of has its arising and then it ceases and it doesn't there's no not as much proliferation it doesn't hang around as long as long so um, that's a little different than the, your initial question about like false equanimity but there's a tightness to it you know it, it's a fear about being messy it's a fear about being inappropriate or being emotional and see, that's different because the equanimity isn't about the surface, like how our life looks. It's really about how we're understanding or relating to the activity. So just like we want to be equanimous with the weather, like now we're actually, now that we've all sort of been afraid of global warming and wanting things to go back to the way they were, well, we're having a real winter. <laughs> and now we can react like, 
oh, well, maybe this global warming isn't so bad. <laughs> so we have, you know, this weather, and it isn't so much uh, like being equanimous with this is just the same as being equanimous with her own conditioning, like allowing winter to be winter. It's just the same as allowing Mark, who's, who's conditioned to be fearful, just allowing that fearfulness to arise when it's been triggered and not be in a hurry for that fearfulness to be other than what it is or to, not to be in a hurry for winter to be other than it is, but just to allow nature to be nature, you know, for things to come and go as they've been conditioned to come and go. So there's always in spiritual you know, practices this uh, tendency towards idealism, you know, wanting to be kind, so we act kind, wanting to be compassionate, so we pretend to be compassionate. And we can really fool ourselves and fool other people. But what gives it away eventually is it's tight. There's a tightness to it. And the whole point of this path, at least, is not to be tight, but to be happy. And happiness, the happiness of release. That's how the Buddha described the ultimate happiness is the full and complete release of the heart. So there's no tightness in the heart. It's released. It's at ease. Just a minute or two left. Anita, do you have a thought? Oh, what's it called? Uh huh. I haven't seen it. That's why I asked. Oh, that's okay. breaking the proliferation. So if we're identified with the thoughts that I'm screwing up, or as long as we stay identified, the tightness is in conjunction, arises in conjunction with the thought that I'm screwing up. So all we have to do, but see, it's an act of wisdom to go from those thoughts to just feeling the breath. So we say it's simple, but actually it's not easy to let go of a thought I'm screwing up. That, that thought has like got big magnets. <laughs> and we want to hold tight to that thought, even though it's not doing any good. It's just causing the tightness. But yet, it's compelling. So it wasn't the instruction that allowed you to do what you did on, on whatever Monday night. But it was probably helpful. But what allowed you to do that was space. It's like 
even though there was tightness, even though you were identified with the thought, I'm screwing up, there's enough space in your mind that you saw the possibility of that's just relative. That doesn't define all of reality that I'm screwing up, that that's a thought in the mind, and there's this other possibility, which is letting go of that identification and just feeling the body or feeling the breath in the body. So it was the wisdom that allowed the letting go to happen, not a technique. A technique is never more than just the technique, you know, going to the breath. But it's nice to have a technique, because then the technique is the placeholder, is the way to remember the wisdom that's there in the mind or in the heart. So we need technique, but it wasn't the technique that did it. It was the understanding that it's okay to let go of that thought and to just be in the body. And, you know, sometimes we have a lot of confidence and sometimes the confidence is sort of shaky, like, maybe I really am screwing up, <laughs> you know, and pick it back up again. Let's just take a second and let go of the words. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.